Father, we come to you and we are so grateful that we have the privilege of glorifying you, that you would see fit your broken vessels, your creation could be used by you as astounding, inconceivable, and Lord, we thank you. As we come to your word this morning, uh, Father, for many, this past week has been a difficult week. Loved ones have been buried this past year, and thus there was empty seats around the table. Others, there's empty seats because of COVID and the fears that loom in the air, and so thus Christmas wasn't the same. For others, it's been a difficult week because of health issues, employment issues, financial concerns. Father, just ask that you would help us to set those aside and allow us this time together, whether we're watching this from home or sitting here in person as we examine this text. Help us to focus on your word and what you have. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1967, one of the world's most valuable paintings, rarest paintings, was brought to North America in a suitcase. <laughs> no, it wasn't being smuggled into this country. Rather, it had been uh, discreetly placed in an American tourist luggage so that not to draw attention to their $5 million purchase. The interesting point about this painting or its purchase was it was sold by the royal family of Liechtenstein because they had a cash problem. They needed to pay for a wedding. And so they sold this piece and it was brought to North America to its new home, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. It's known as the Mona Lisa. Geneva D'Isbensi is the only Leonardo da Vinci painting in all of the Americas and being housed prominently in the, one of the most frequently visited museums in the world. We've been journeying through another gallery, haven't we? It's the literary gallery of the Gospel of Luke. In the last three weeks, we've examined some rather less-known portraits it's not Mary and Joseph we focused on. We've looked at, uh, well, Elizabeth, and we looked at Zechariah. We looked at Simeon last week, and today our focus is on Anna. Rather obscure, nestled in the text. And as we examined last week, and if you remember the scene, Mary and Joseph, purification rites, 40 days after giving birth, the mother is supposed to come to the temple and purify herself. Joseph is also being purified and if that, you know, why? We talked a little bit of that last week. It's a very devout family. And also, they are doing what is required in Exodus, and that is they're dedicating their firstborn son, Jesus, to God. You had Simeon come into the scene last week. He is an, uh, an elderly, probably priest. The text tells us from Jerusalem. And you have now this elderly woman coming in, and according to Deuteronomy 19, you have to have two witnesses to validate a claim. What's the claim? Jesus is the Savior of the world. Salvation is the unifying theme of the Gospel of Luke. It's, it's the major paint that's spread across the canvas, you might say. If you've got that palette, there's a huge glob for this paint. 
and that's labeled salvation. And it's plastered across the canvas as it, Luke is painting this because he's trying to show us it's a Savior for the entire world. And, and it's a Savior for those living on the outskirts. It's why in the Magi that come later, remember, the, if you have a nativity set, the Magi need to be in the other room. They come uh, much later. But the Magi, they're only featured in Matthew's gospel. Why? Because Matthew's showing us who is the king of the Jews. The shepherd, you won't find them in Matthew's narrative of the birth account. Luke highlights them because they're considered unclean. They're considered on the outskirts of society. And so Luke highlights that shepherds are brought into the equation. And here you have another individual that's brought in along with Simeon to say, this is the Savior of the world. The text starts and it says, there was a prophetess, Anna. And there is so much that's described here that I just want to unpack this. And this is there in your notes if you have them. If you're looking online, they're available there to the side of the screen. The first thing we see is that she is a divinely appointed prophetess. Immediately you should sit up and take nourishment. <laughs> I mean, as soon as you hear that word, boom, you're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on here in the text that you have a prophetess? Because there are only seven women in the Bible who are called prophetess. Uh, Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Olda, and Esther. That is quite a laundry list, is it not? Anna is placed with these other seven women that serve as strategic figures in Jewish history. Anna was afforded divine, I wrote, insight into things normally hidden from ordinary people. Like Simeon, she's been waiting. I mean, the text tells us that. So look at verse 38. It says, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Remember Jesus in Luke 24 on the Emmaus Road? It says of the two that he's walking with, they said, we're, we're waiting for salvation. We're waiting for the redemption. Anna's been faithfully serving, and we'll look at that in a minute, but God has allowed Anna's hands, hands that probably have never embraced a child of her own, to touch the child of God. This is Anna. She's this great prophetess. And then we're told she's the daughter of Phanuel of the house of Asher. And you, you kind of, if you're scratching your head going, why is this significant? It's a good question. Don't gloss over these obscure terms or words or names because they're very significant. Fanuel means for he has seen God face to face. It's a metaphor that's used of God's favor. It recalls the priestly blessing, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Number six. In other words, in many ways, Faniel recalls various Old Testament characters who had an encounter with God. Jacob, Moses, Elijah, all of them saw God, right? And as aptly noted by one New Testament scholar, he says, Anna's description as a prophetess, the daughter of Faniel, a member of the tribe of Asher, links Anna with the revelation by God to God's people, a revelation that Anna herself is going to see face to face and proclaim. 
So the name is very significant. Yeah, obviously Faneuil is known because this is how we're identifying Anna. There are a lot of Annas. Which one is she? Oh, that's the daughter of Faneuil. So it's assumed you probably know who Faneuil is. But I think there's also a significance going on in light of the name. This is Faneuil. But what's more intriguing is the tribe that she belongs to. Anna is the only Jewish character in the New Testament who is said to belong to one of the northern tribes of Israel. Oh, you'll find Judah. You'll find Levi in the New Testament. You will not find the tribe of Asher. And if you immediately need to ask, why? Why is this so significant, this elderly woman? Mary and Joseph meet her in the temple area, in the court of women. Why is this so significant? Asher is the tribe that borders the Gentile territory up in northern Galilee going into Phoenicia. It was a region rife with Jewish and Gentile friction. Both Simeon and Anna represent two aspects to this eschatological salvation, this end-time prediction of Isaiah 40 through 66. Simeon, remember his description? Look what the text says in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem. Simeon represents the Jews of Jerusalem who have gathered around their Messiah. And I would argue Anna represents the Jews on the outskirts who have come to worship their king in Jerusalem. It's very symbolic. All Jews have gathered to identify this baby is the salvation of the world. This is our Savior. This is who we've longed to see. This is the promised Messiah. And so, the one who says we are seeing God face to face, this daughter of Phanuel, is from the tribe of Asher. Isn't that significant? It should be. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke is highlighting this for us. To say, look, these two witnesses validate the claim of who Jesus is. Well, notice what else we're told about her. Not only is she a prophetess, she's the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. We're then told she's very old. (laughs) And it's like, thank you. That's kind of how I feel sometimes. Very old. In fact, the Greek is, it says, it really is literally rendered very old in her many days. She's old, really old, right? And having been married to her husband for seven years until his death, she has lived as a widow since then for 84 years. I I have in your notes that she's an elderly widow. You could also put there in that category uh, a social outcast. Let me unpack this because this is very significant. As we've stated, Luke is writing a gospel for all people. And so it shouldn't surprise you, in Luke's gospel, he highlights people that are on the margins of society. If you want to read about the poor and Jesus' interaction with him, look at the gospel of Luke. There's more on the poor in Luke's gospel than the other three. The sick, look to Luke's gospel. Women, look to Luke's gospel. Forty percent of all the people named in Luke's gospel are women over 40%. That is extremely significant. Extremely. Because, let me just bear with me, all right? This is, this is the prevalent thought by many in the first century. Sirach, it's a, a book written by Jewish 
teachers during about 180 BC. Sirach is included in the Apocrypha. Listen to what it states. Better is the wickedness of man than a woman who does good. It is a woman who brings shame and disgrace. Really? I love reading that when those who, who want to argue the Apocrypha should be included in the canon. <laughs> they immediately stop it and say, oh, okay. No, maybe not. The renowned first century Jewish philosopher Philo refers throughout his writings that female traits are a sign of weakness. And in a similar vein, in the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, uh, a Jewish writing probably during the intertestament period pronounces women as evil and the source for most sin. Wow. So foreign to the Old and New Testament teaching, isn't it? But this is the thought that's prevailing through the day. So you have Simeon. I mean, he's got it all together. But then there's Anna. She's a woman. And, and, and that's the first strike, might I say, against her as she is ministering here in the temple. We're also told, as we stated, she is old. She's well advanced in years. There is no handicapped parking at the temple. There's no AARP, which, by the way, I found out they give that at age 50, which is very nice. Um, <laughs> about a year ago, I was at Goodwill purchasing something, and I said, oh, that's not the right... So, oh, I gave you a discount. You're a senior citizen. I said, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I never went back. The luxuries of handicap parking, AARP, or Icy Hot were not at her disposal. There was no social security or welfare in the first century. And, and if we, we have this correct, if she's betrothed at the age of 11, 12, or 13, possibly 14, think about that, ladies, young girls in this room, and Mary would have been 11, 12, or 13 when she's told you're pregnant through the role of the Holy Spirit, Right? Married for seven years, the text tells us, and then widowed for 84, Anna would have been 105. Now, we have record of others living that time frame or that period in this time frame. The apocrypha story of Judith, we, need a, we meet a, a lady who deliberately remains a widow and dies at the age of 105. Judith receives praise in the book for her refusal to remarry and is associated with great piety. But regardless, she's a woman, she's old, right? And if you've been to Jerusalem and you've walked up the steps, the ruins of the, the, the Temple Mount, that's a lot of walking. <laughs> it's all uphill in Jerusalem. And we're told that she was a widow, and we know a lot about widows, don't we, in the New Testament, because they're portrayed as weak, vulnerable, oppressed by society. And look at Luke 18. Just flip over to Luke 18. We'll study this text later, but we'll show some of our cards now. Luke 18, look at this passage. Jesus told them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. And what's the contrast? It says, there was also a widow who kept coming him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So to be seen as a widow in the first century 
was seen as one that was very vulnerable. Interestingly, widowhood could allude to Isaiah 54, where the analogy is used to describe the shame of Israel. Isaiah prophesies that the Lord is going to remove the shame and redeem the widow, that is Israel. And Anna's note of praise, I would argue, in verse 38 only highlights, I think, this connection. But she's vulnerable. She's, she's a female. She's old. She's a widow. And most likely, based upon the text, though it doesn't state it explicitly, she has no children. There's an absence of children mentioned, which only accentuates her abandonment and helplessness in the text. In Jewish culture, a child, especially a son, assured future care, provision. That was your AARP. That was your assisted living, was to live with your son. Without a legal protector, the position of a widow in an Israelite society was precarious. She was often neglected or exploded, writes one scholar. And part of the reason for the harsh treatment of widows may have been the common view that widowhood was a reproach from God Himself, which we don't see, do we? According to even 1 Timothy, a text that highlights the beauty of how God can use widows for His glory. But in the first century, it was seen as vulnerability. It was seen as a weakness. And so think about this. Here's Anna. She faces the grief of losing a husband. She has most likely never had a child. And, and yet through all this ostracism for not carrying out her society role and the social blight of widowhood, where is she? She's not playing Ruby Cube with a bunch of ladies. She's not working in her garden. She's in the temple serving. It's, it's incredible. And, and that leaves us to the final descriptor that we see in the text. She's a faithful worshiper. She's not growing bitter from life's difficulties or avoiding social settings with their hurtful comments and painful situations. Anna chooses a life of service to the Lord. She's learned to rest in the Lord, hasn't she? That's what the text says. She never left the temple. Now, that's a bit of a hyperbole because the temple doors would have been closed at night. But if the doors are open, she's there, worshiping with fasting and praying night and day. 1 Timothy 5 states, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God as to be blessed. This kind of woman is one who continues in prayer night and day. Anna fulfills what Paul wrote about in 1 Timothy 5.5. 5. She's a perfect picture, if you would, of what it means to be faithful despite the circumstances. You know, all of these strikes against her is what allows her to be in the temple nonstop. Sexual relations and bearing children were causes of ritual impurity and would have prevented Anna from social interaction and religious worship. Because she had neither of those, she could be in the temple nonstop. And she has been granted the psalmist's desire to live in the house of the Lord all the days of her life so that she may await the Lord coming to his temple, according to Malachi 3. And that's the blessing she gets in this process. So we meet this elderly woman 
nestled in the text in Luke chapter 2. And we see this declaration seen in verse 38. At that moment, she came up to them. What's that moment? Well, the baby's just been dedicated by Simeon. Remember, we're in the court of women at the temple complex. And so she's, she's been observing this, and she's a prophetess. So God has given her insight. And she's heard what Simeon has declared. And notice what she does. She begins to give thanks to God. It's fulfilled. The prophetess has spoken, right? And to speak about the child to all who are waiting for this redemption. It's interesting, this idea of giving thanks to God. That term you'll find nowhere else in the Greek New Testament. You will find in the Greek translation of Isaiah 52, it's the idea of offering back praise to God. It was used in Ezra when they laid the foundation stone of the temple. They gave praise back to God. This is what he deserves. This is what he has done for us. For he alone, according to Ezra, is good. His loyal love towards Israel is forever. And Psalm 79 states, Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will continually thank you. We will tell coming generations of your praiseworthy acts. You know, Anne is not wallowing in a corner licking her wounds. <laughs> she is out forefront speaking about the child to all who are waiting. I got news for you. You know, you can see this, right? Anna's taking her vitamins that day. She's excited. I got to tell you, her activity conveys someone totally focused on serving God. And notice the text says to the redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem in many ways symbolizes the nation. God's salvific act for his people. It's what Simeon declared. It's what Zechariah declared. It's what Mary has declared. And we're not out of chapter 2 yet of Luke. It's the major idea. This is our Savior who has arrived. And Simeon and Anna come along as the two witnesses of Deuteronomy 19, stating, this is our Savior. This is the one we have looked to. Well, what do you do with this portrait? What are some principles for a self-portrait? And I have a few of those down at the bottom of your notes. The first of these is resting in the presence of the Lord entails not only acknowledging God's provisions, but also recognizing the person and work of Christ. As I mentioned, Anna, the text tells us, never left the temple. And, and I would have expected her, at least in her early years, to have avoided such social gatherings with the hurtful comments and the painful innuendos. Think about this. She's serving in the court of the women. What happens in the court of the women? She's, she's watching daily as women come for purification because they've given birth to a child. Salt in the wound, <laughs> right? She's, she's observing this. She's hearing the women pray, giving praise to God for finding a spouse or having become pregnant. She's watching all this. She's seeing God answer prayer. And then all those baby dedications. I didn't get married till I was 30. And I will tell you, after a while, I got sick of receiving wedding invitations. <laughs> it's like, the next one better be my own. But God has a plan. And we rest in Him. We bask in Him. Anna wasn't busy with an online dating service. 
And there's nothing wrong with those. I'm not saying that. I'm just stating Anna focused on serving God in the temple. How do we abide in God's presence? It sounds nice. It sounds rather reader's digest. Abide in Christ. What does that mean? How do we practice this vague command on our lives? Let me give you a couple of points. First of all, it's acknowledging the Lord is the source of all comfort and strength. Acknowledging the Lord is the source of all comfort and strength. Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh, my heart may fail. And I am sure Anna said that many times, especially at 105. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's Anna. Remember the old hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting. Listen to the lyrics. Oh, how great thy loving kindness, vaster, broader than the sea. Oh, how marvelous thy goodness, lavished all on me. Yes, I rest in thee, beloved. Know what wealth of grace is thine. Know thy certainty of promise and have made it mine. Arthritis might have set in, but Anna has held tight to the promise God's Savior is coming. And I don't know where you are today. Some of you shared, it's been a rough week. It's been a rough year. <laughs> and 2021 may not look very promising to you. It is in the Lord. Rest in Him. That was Anna. Recognizing another way we abide in Christ is recognize the person and work of Christ. Hebrews 4, we have a sympathetic high priest he understands our Savior ensures access to mercy and grace during life's hardships because he can both sympathize and empathize with us. Isn't that great? We don't serve some God up in the sky who, who, who doesn't understand. No, 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 no. He came and dwelled among us. We just celebrated that. That's very significant. And finally, how do we abide in Christ's presence? I would argue relying on the empowerment and comfort of the Holy Spirit. The great comforter, remember? The upper room discourse and what Jesus stated, I'm going to send you a comforter who knows the deep longings of the heart and communicates those desires to the Father. The same comforter encourages the believer's heart and provides strength and peace to continue. So maybe you feel a little like Anna today. You're not outside the ideal bubble, or you are outside the ideal bubble. You don't have two kids and a dog, and everything's wonderful, and you send out the Christmas cards with all the pictures on them. That, that doesn't fit your description. And, and maybe you feel a little more like Anna, abide in Christ's presence. That's what Anna... I, Every time I read this text, I am just overwhelmed, um, amazed at, the, at this lady who, who had all the strikes against her, but she's faithfully serving. She is not going to waver. I love it. You know what Anna's name means? God's grace. She understood that. Secondly, Anna reminds us of the importance of seeking to serve rather than to be served. 
Seeking to serve rather than to be served. I wrote three things down here. Number one, there is no self-gratification. That's the problem with some of the widows that Paul writes to in 1 Timothy 5. Widows are to serve as a godly role model. They're not to be waiting to be given handouts by the church. Anna did not confine herself to the Red Hat Society or the local crocheting club. Not that those things are wrong, but the point is that Anna was actively serving ministry. There is no retirement in the Lord's work. There is no retirement. Hate to tell you, there's no 401. <laughs> well, there is. It's called glory in heaven. But, but there is there, no self-gratification. There's no self-pity. She didn't wallow. I mentioned this in self-pity. There, there's the paralysis of the past. It's amazing how often I, I meet people. It, it, it's got them shackled. Well, if you had been through what I've been through, well, no, I haven't been, and I'm sorry, but look at Anna. When we get to heaven, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm going to introduce you, though you'll, you'll meet her probably before I do, but I want to introduce you to Audrey Stricken. Audrey was my landlady that I lived with just for a year when I was overseas. Her mother died giving birth to her. Her father died at age four. She was passed around from foster distant relatives. It was a horrific story. And yet, never married, never having children, she started an orphanage, took care of it with a dear friend who then died of cancer, who, Audrey, stood by her side for several years in horrific death. She then served at the church as a church secretary. And after retirement, when I was living with her, she was busy. I mean, she was doing the missions thing. She had this prayer group she was involved with. She was stuffing church envelopes on Saturdays. She never missed an opportunity to serve. And she exuded the love of Christ. <laughs> Despite all the adversity... And she'd tell me, she'd, I, I don't buy this. Oh, well, if you knew my upbringing. She said, don't, I don't want to hear that. She, she said, our life is short. We've got a God to serve. And joy just oozed out of every pore in her being. There was no self-pity, no self-gratification, and there is no concern of one's inadequacies. Whether we doubt our shortcomings or the rhetorics of others which might cast doubt on our ability to serve God, take heart. Moses stuttered. David's armor, it didn't fit. John Mark was rejected by Paul at one point. Abraham, too old. David, too young. Lazarus, he was dead. Peter was a loud mouth. And Anna, she was an elderly widow. But God used them all, Right? Anna is such a testimony to us to be faithfully serving. And a third point is no matter our circumstances, we are called to praise the Lord. How do we praise the Lord in the midst of suffering? Well, first, we maintain a heavenly focus. Anna was looking, notice that the text says, for the redemption of Israel. What consumes your thoughts? Between the fifth and the hundredth snooze button that you hit, and you're laying there in bed, where does your mind go? What are you thinking about? What consumes you? 
when no one's around and you're sitting there thinking about life. Philippians 3, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christianity is an apocalyptic religion. What I mean by that is we are looking to the end, right? This is not our home, thank goodness. (laughs) Uh, We received an ornament from my in-laws and it has 2020, but the, the the first zero is the COVID sign, and it has four little heads. They all have masks on with a roll of toilet paper that's wrapped around. It's hilarious. It's a reminder, this isn't it. We're, we're looking to the end. We're looking to our redemption, our Savior to return. And are we as focused as Anna? Have we gotten caught up with politics, the economy, the latest social media posting, or this crazy pandemic that we've kind of got lost in the midst of it? I confess I have. It's easy, isn't it? To, to, to lose, ah, that's where we're headed. That's where we need to be, is maintaining a heavenly focus. And secondly, trusting rather than demanding an answer. Louis Albert Banks tells the story of an elderly Christian man, a fine singer, who learned that he had tongue cancer and it was requiring cancer, or surgery, excuse me. Right before they wheeled him into the surgery, the man said to the doctor, he said, are you sure I'll never sing again? And the surgeon reluctantly nodded his head, yes. The patient then asked if he could sit up for a moment. He said, I've had many good times singing praises to God, he said, and now you tell me I most likely will never sing again. I have one song, and it will be my last. It will be of gratitude and praise to God. There in the doctor's presence, the man sang softly the words of Isaac Watts' hymn, I'll praise my maker. I'll praise my maker while I've breath." And when my voice is lost in death, praise till employ my nobler powers. My days of praise shall never be past, while life and thought and being last or immortality endures. Praise. Anna, she's on the outskirts of society. She has all these strikes to get her. She's, she's not affluent. Jewish male priest in the temple. No, no, no. She's watched them go by day after day. They go on into the court of the Israelites and into the the, the holy place. She can't go on into that area. No, no. She's confined to the court of women. She's a widow who has all the strikes against her. Instead of licking her wounds, she's faithfully serving the Lord night and day praising Him. As we go into 2021, I know next week is our New Year's sermon. It's a great reminder. If I had a photo of Anna, I would print it off for you. You could put it on your dashboard. But maybe just write Luke 2. And don't forget this amazing portrait that's nestled in the text of a lady who realizes there is no retirement in God's service. And despite all that society has given her, 
all the innuendos and statements that have been made. Because remember, when the man that was born blind, even the disciples asked, who sinned? So I, I am sure she's heard people talking over in the corner. Huh, I wonder what she did wrong. That God should take her husband only after seven years. No, she, she honed in on serving the Lord. And she had the glorious opportunity of declaring joy to the world. The Lord has come. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these individuals that are highlighted in the story. Individuals such as Anna. Oh, I'm sure she had her difficult days. I'm sure there was days when she, she wished she had some arthritic medicine going up those steps. But Lord, she faithfully served. May our lives emulate this incredible lady. May we be known as followers of you, faithfully serving, latching on to the promise that there's a day coming when that Little one who came to Bethlehem is going to come again as the King of kings and Lord of lords. May it be today. In the name of our glorious Savior, your Son, Jesus, we pray.